podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Crowds of 15,000 to 20,000 people turned up to watch the Blue and Red women play. They were part of the original English Lady Cricketers, a professional women's cricket competition that made money for the organisers. That was in 1890. A mere 120 years later, women international cricketers would get their first professional contract. The War of the Roses all over again. Perfect blooms without a single thorn. The Yorkshire ladies are bat at against the Lancashire ladies with bat. The atmosphere becomes so charged with excitement that apparently the trees in the background catch fire. But our cameramen bring back some charming pictures of grace and beauty on the field of King Willow. And just as the men of Yorkshire put the final touches to Lancashire at Old Trafford, the Yorkshire ladies win their match, and Yorkshire marches on. Welcome to Double Century. This episode, we look at the long road the women's game took to get to professionalism. This involves paying for your own blazer, not being able to play if you are married, then eventually playing with a broken leg and cricket in Brazil. For the longest time, to play cricket at the highest level, you needed to be from a Commonwealth country or have a penis. That's now changing. England comes out to play Australia in a test match. Even if they can't put in Mrs. Bradman, we haven't got a Mrs. Hobbs, that doesn't spoil the fun. This is the first time that representative teams from the two countries have met. That's something of an occasion. Maybe ten years from now, when we men are all mere slaves, we shall remember the beginning of the end at Northampton on this sunny June day. And at the end of the first day's play, Australia is all out for 300, and England has made 14 for one. That cricket league I talked about at the top, that was one where women were recruited through a newspaper ad by a French-American entrepreneur, Mr. E. Michael. His ad read that he was looking for women of good address and appearance, respectable, strong, active, not under 5 foot 6 inch in height or over 22 years in age. It's a hell of a Tinder profile he had. The original English lady cricketers played around 60 games. Most were seen by 2,000 spectators. There was that one in Liverpool where between 15 and 20,000 attended. It wasn't well reported on. And you'd have to assume the quality would have been quite poor, being that there was no mention of cricket skills in the ad. W.G. Grace said, Cricket is not a game for women. And although they occasionally join in on a picnic game, they are not constitutionally adapted for the sport. I'm not really sure what that means, but who would have thought that W.G. Grace would be on the wrong side of history there? The games did lose interest after a while. Probably wasn't helped by the fact that the women didn't play under their own names. The founder, Mr. Michael, eventually fled with all the money. And women's cricket struggled for any attention, even hateful or perverted, for a long time after. Australian captain Molly Dive leads her team onto the Sydney cricket ground for the final test against England. Visiting opener McLaglan has a life as she's dropped in slips by Craddock. Australia's one test up and England must win this to retain the Ashes. They play seriously and well. This one's gone straight through to the fence. Wilkinson hits one and hard. It's just as well Bradman has retired. These girls may be ladies, but they're certainly fast between wickets. A typical Bradman hook. There's no body line in this series. Big hit, and just as well she missed. That would have quietened the barricades. Miss Duggan, uh, sorry, dug out. She's bowled by Craddock for two. She snicks it, and Schmidt takes a brilliant catch. It was no fluke either. Out to Saunders. 
Another snake and another catch. That's smart work. Even if girls do get a lot of practice in slips. There wasn't even a women's test match played until 1934-35. That is when an English team toured Australia. The English women were all single. Married women were simply not allowed to be away from their families. These single women had to pay £80 per head for the honour of representing their country. They were also told not to smoke, drink or gamble, or be accompanied by a man. Many men's tours probably should have had the same advice. Betty Archdale was their captain, a daughter of a famous suffragette, and a strong batter. She led from the front in a low-scoring series that England won 2-0. England also beat New Zealand in their first test of that period. In the follow-up series, Australia won the first test, England the second, and going into the third, England's keeper, the great in name and playing style, Betty Snowball, made 99 in a draw. On the topic of great names, one of the best early players was Myrtle McLagan. She was an incredible cricketer, averaging over 40 with the bat and under 16 with the ball. She opened the batting and bowling. She probably could have kept if she wanted to. Women's cricket remained incredibly amateur and almost entirely the domain of Australia, England and New Zealand for a very long time. Then a heroine arrived. She hit the first six in women's tests. She batted for 521 minutes in making a world record 179 against Australia at the Oval to draw a test. She averaged 45 in that format, made 300s, and when she retired, she made 33% more runs than any other woman in history. She was the cricketer of her time, of all time. But as great as she was as a player, Rachel Hayhoe Flint changed cricket more off the field. The first Cricket World Cup started after a conversation with an England captain over a bottle of brandy. That captain was Hayhoe Flint. In 1973, two years before the men, the women played their first World Cup. The teams were Australia, New Zealand, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, England, Young England, and an International Eleven. And she was also responsible for the first women's match at Lords. Women's cricket has had many great players, and of recent times, some great teams, but it has always lacked depth. At this stage, it lacked teams and coverage. Hayho Flint and the other players went around town putting up banners to promote it. She also tried to ring up as much media attention as she could. It was tough. The first game was between New Zealand and Jamaica. It rained. No one turned up to watch. But she was more than just a cricketer. This is from her Guardian obituary, which I am mentioning, but you'll see why in a moment. Jared Kimber called her the WG Grace of women's cricket, and he was being only slightly hyperbolic. I wasn't being hyperbolic at all. Grace came into an industry and was the first global sporting star out of it. Hayho Flint created the industry herself. She brought the women's game to the world. She forced them to talk about it. She went out on the street corners taking donations. She found some of the first sponsors for the game. She wrote about it as a journalist, often writing match reports of games she was in just to make sure someone covered them. WG Grace wasn't out on the street corners grabbing people's spare change or writing up a solid 150 words on a match he just played in. And she did it at a time when she wasn't allowed to be an MCC member because she was a woman. But there she was, holding cricket's first World Cup in the place she couldn't be a member of, at Lords. That's a statement. And how about this? She captained the first women's team at Lords. She was in the first group of women MCC members. She's a life member of the MCC. She was on the board of the Wolverhampton Wanderers. She was one of the first ever women sports commentators. 
the first woman inducted into the ICC's Hall of Fame and one of the first two women appointed to the board of the ECB, and she became a Lord's Peer and a Baroness. The MCC should be ashamed that, while they have elected rebel players to be president, they never found a place for one of the club's shining lights. She passed away while the Women's Big Bash League was being played, a league that had women professional cricketers in a domestic competition from New Zealand, South Africa, India, England and the West Indies, all being shown on TV. When Hayho Flint was a child, she wouldn't have dreamed of such a thing. Now young girls can grow up and dream of playing cricket for a living. A lot of that is because of her. Women's cricket as it was, when Rachel Hayho Flint was captain of England, just setting out on her campaign for change. Even before her playing days were over, she was a pioneer, organising the first Women's World Cup in 1973 and then in 1976, leading England out to face Australia in the first ever women's match to be played at Lords. I think there was a sort of reticence and nervousness that perhaps the, the women might take over altogether and that there might be rape and pillage of the members in the luncheon intervals or something like that. We might not present an acceptable face of cricket. She used her influence and celebrity to give women's cricket a higher public profile. The power of women's cricket moved towards Australia for a long time. And much of that was because of one incredible player. The name of this award gives it away. Belinda, the Belinda Clark Medal. And the winner of the Belinda Clark Award is Elise Perry. Belinda Clark made the first international double hundred in ODI, men's or women's. She averaged 37 in ODIs, 47 in tests and captained two World Cup wins. The Belinda Clark Medal is part of Australia's award ceremony for cricketers on Alan Border Medal Night. There can't be anybody that's had a greater impact on women's cricket than Belinda Clark. She changed the way that women played cricket. She was a classical batsman, but one who hit the ball harder than anyone else had hit the ball before. She ran between wickets like nobody had ever run between wickets before, and she fielded better than anybody else in the game. Her commitment to preparation, her professional approach, to the game belied the fact that it was very much still a pastime for women cricketers. She's inspired generations of women and girls to want to play the game of cricket. Off the field, she's been just as good as she was on the field. She had no peers as a player, and it's been her passion to make women's cricket something that women and girls aspire to play. I can't think of a more appropriate person to be the first woman to be inducted into the Cricket Australia Hall of Fame. She has worked as an administrator for the women's game and the men's. She has also commentated on cricket. And along with English legend Claire Connor, they rewrote the rules of the women's ashes. But the important thing about Clark is that she wasn't on her own. In 1994 at the SCG, there was an exhibition match a Bradman 11 versus a World 11 All-Stars. Zoe Goss, the Australian all-rounder, was bowling to Brian Lara. Oh, and there's a big appeal there, so I think she's got him. Zoe's got him. Zoe Goss has got Brian Lara, and boy, that's brought a smile to her face. Well, Brian, you've made someone's day. I know that much. That's how it goes sometimes. I think I was a bit over-careful. Oh, he's stumped. Nice take by Rickson. Good piece of work. He was out, dragged forward. Rickson takes the bars off. 
And the right there for Zoe Goss. He's bowled pretty well. Big occasion for us. He hasn't bowled with too much width. Well, Zoe, how do you feel about all that? Uh, we're overwhelmed, I think. That, is, uh, that just drifted out a little bit. Yeah, I had a bit of coaching from Dennis, actually. Really? Yes, to tell you the truth. <laughs> just beat the outside edge and not a bad stumping. Oh, stumped and caught behind. <laughs> he nicked it as well, did he? Yeah. Right. <laughs> this is a dismissal here. What's the uh, ball? Does it get an edge? Yes, there's an edge there, big nick. They're feeling for the catch, and that's fair enough. It's in the Brian Lara, caught behind by Steve Rickson. That wicket pushed the women's game massively. But other than Goss, there was also Catherine Fitzpatrick, who was perhaps the fastest bowler on earth, and Karen Rolton, who was probably, possibly, an even better batter than Clark. But while most Australian cricket fans probably knew of at least one of these players, and they also once played in the World Cup final at Eden Gardens in front of 80,000 fans, these cricketers still had to pay just to get on the field. Zoe Goss once said, I probably spent a good down payment on a mortgage while I was playing. If you added up the player levies that we had to pay for state and international cricket. If that sounds horrible, it is. Considering that by 1997, Cricket Australia were making a fair whack of money. The ECB were charging their players as well. But these women were desperate to play cricket. Not because it would make them rich, it actively made them poorer but because they loved the game. The running joke in pro cricket is you play your first 20 tests for love and the rest for money. Not one of these women played more than 20 tests. And even if they had, there would still be no money. They just played because they love cricket. In the 2013 World Cup final, it was Australia up against the West Indies. The fact that the West Indies made it to the final and that earlier in the tournament, England had been beaten by Sri Lanka showed that finally the women's game was moving beyond the three main sides. But in that final, it was Elise Perry who was bowling. She once kicked the goal of the tournament in a Women's Football World Cup. Now she was bowling for Australia. In Australian cricket, the ghost of Rick McCosker's jaw is never far away. And here's McCosker swathed in bandages with March approaching his century. Leave it to McCosker. And he's hooked the short ball, it's coming down to the boundary, and that will make it 8 for 387, it stumps on the third day. McCosker was in hospital for a day and a half after his jaw was broken on the first morning of the centenary test, after hooking a bit early against Bob Willis. But with a broken jaw in two places, McCosker still came back out to bat and helped Australia win. His face was surrounded by a bandage, his head was protected with the baggy green. John Lever bounced him, McCosker hooked him for four, he made 25 in a partnership of 50. Australia won the test by 45 runs. Perry shouldn't have been playing in that final. Australia had a potential replacement in Holly Furling, who had done well enough that Perry needn't be tested. But she is a star, and she wanted to help win the World Cup for her team. Australia took a gamble on her fitness. With the bat, Perry's foot held up. She slogged her way to 25 off 22, the only Australian with a strike rate above 100 and she woke up an innings that was dipping into a coma. When she came on to bowl, the West Indies had handled the new ball quite well. They'd built a platform, not lost a wicket, and they still had Stefani Taylor and Deandra Dotton to come, the West Indies star hitters. Australia needed Perry. Instead of steaming in and firing through the openers, Perry barely got to the crease for her first attempt. She pulled up, limped, and looked worried. As did every other Australian player. It didn't look like she'd get through a ball, let alone an over. The second attempt was much the same. It ended in no delivery, pain and worry. It was then that the captain, Jody Fields, shot a look off at the dressing room. It wasn't a happy look. 
Australia's gamble was about to cost them 10 overs of a strike bowler, and Fields was suddenly trying to work out how she was going to make up for that. Perry could have limped off, but Perry refused to give up. Her third attempt was painful to watch. It was someone hurting, someone who didn't trust her body, but somehow she delivered a ball. Nothing great, but one more than looked likely moments earlier. Her teammates screamed their support. The ball was left alone and went through to Fields, who kept the ball and ran up to Perry. It was the briefest of chats, perhaps just mindless support. Fields knew how important every ball Perry bowled was. It was the difference between the West Indies having a chance to win and not. Whatever was said got Perry through the over. With her sixth ball, Perry took Kaisia Knight with a dodgy LBW. Perry's seventh ball took the edge of West Indies gun Taylor, but the evidence on the catch was inconclusive. Perry's 10th ball, though, she had Taylor out caught and bowled. Perry's 15th was Natasha McLean's wicket. After three overs, Perry's figures were 3-2-2-3. Perry might have limped her way through, but it was the West Indies who never recovered. She could have stepped back from there, but she wouldn't allow herself to become a passenger. Perry kept giving it her all. She raced around for runouts, dived to stop singles, threw herself into the air unsafely, unwisely and ungainly to catch Deandra Dotton and continued to bowl. Perry bowled her entire 10 overs, often limping in between balls, but she kept going until Australia had won the World Cup. In her last over, Perry bowled a bouncer. It was a special effort, courageous and skillful. An injured foot is not quite as sexy as McCosker's broken jaw, but 10 days after the final, the x-ray showed that Perry had a broken foot, a stress fracture, in her left tibia. She had won the World Cup on a broken leg. Perry might have done that as an amateur. It is very possible. But in truth, being a professional allows you to put your body under that kind of stress. And it means that if you do it, you're not only rewarded with a potential win, but also medical treatment. A year after that, the England women were told they would be made professional. Charlotte Edwards, one of the greatest players, said on Twitter, today is a day I never thought I'd see in my time as a player. In the years since, many nations have made steps around the world to make their women professional. Australia has 100 women players. Sri Lanka used their armed forces to train their women and treat them like professionals. Their game has got a lot better ever since. Earlier this year, 86,174 people came to see the final of the World Cup at the MCG. The women were not selected by the fact they were under 22 and tall. They did not pay for their blazers, and many in that whole World Cup, were paid to play. If you have followed women's cricket even casually, you knew what this meant. So many men say to me, the women's game is crap. They aren't fit. They don't bowl fast. And there aren't enough good players. And I always say the same thing. The men had a 120-year head start. She comes down and she's out. Thailand can't believe it. She's missed it. And Larmaritz loses her wicket and Ireland lose the game. Well, joyous scenes here for the Thailand women's cricket team. They've beaten Ireland, the much-fancied Ireland, by three runs. It's an absolutely deserved victory, it must be said. They've been the better side from ball one. In this most recent World Cup, Thailand qualified. An incredible achievement for them and a huge step forward for cricket. For too long, women and non-Commonwealth countries didn't exist in our sport. The ICC spent a lot of time shunning the women's game. But it wasn't just Thailand. In January this year, a really small thing happened that was barely reported on, but was incredibly magical. The Associa Brasilia de Cricket, and I do hope I've said that right, basically Brazil's cricket board, gave out 14 contracts for their women's team. 
They became the first nation to fully professionalize their women's team ahead of their men's. Do you know why they did it? Because they could only afford to make one team professional and the women were doing better. At my first cricket club, women made the tea. Now they make hundreds. When I play cricket in the backyard with my boys, they use a Rachel Hayhoe Flint bat. When I think back to all of these women and what they did, they did it because they loved our sport, even when our sport didn't love them back. I talked to Alex Hartley recently on another podcast, and she said one thing that still sticks with me, and it stuck with me almost every time I've ever worked with women cricketers. I said, was she worried about what would happen to women's cricket if some of the money disappeared? And she said, no, because in women's cricket, almost everyone plays because they love the game, not because of the money. I think the money is needed to make them grow and to get more women's cricketers involved. But Alex is right when it comes down to it. These women play because they love the game. It's just that the game hasn't always loved them back. Finally, hopefully, it finally is. Double Century is a podcast based on my book, Test Cricket, The Unauthorised Biography. It is written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the entire thing exist. And our fact-checkers are Bertie Moores and Abhishek Mukherjee. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So please help out there if you can. The link is in the show notes. And thanks to the many who already do. This is our first season. There will be 11 episodes in all. So please help share and review to get this podcast out there. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.